Section three of Mind Amongst the Spindles, edited by Charles Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The Spirit of Discontent. I will not stay in Lowell any longer. I am determined to give my notice this very day, said Ellen Collins, as the earliest bell was tolling to remind us of the hour for labor. Why, what is the matter, Ellen? It seems to me you have dreamed out a new idea. Where do you think of going, and what for? I am going home, where I shall not be obliged to rise so early in the morning, nor be dragged about by the ringing of a bell, nor confined in a close, noisy room from morning till night. I will not stay here. I am determined to go home in a fortnight. Such was our brief morning's conversation. In the evening, as I sat alone, reading, my companions having gone out to public lectures or social meetings, Ellen entered. I saw that she still wore the same gloomy expression of countenance which had been manifested in the morning, and I was disposed to remove from her mind the evil influence by a plain common-sense conversation. "'And so, Ellen,' said I, "'you think it unpleasant to rise so early in the morning and be confined in the noisy mill so many hours during the day. And I think so, too. All this, and much more, is very annoying, no doubt. But we must not forget that there are advantages.' as well as disadvantages, in this employment as in every other. If we expect to find all sunshine and flowers in any station in life, we shall most surely be disappointed. We are very busily engaged during the day, but then we have the evening hours to ourselves, with no one to dictate to or control us. I have frequently heard you say that you would not be confined to household duties, and that you dislike the millinery business altogether, because you could not have your evenings for leisure." You know that in Lowell we have schools, lectures, and meetings of every description, for moral and intellectual improvement. All that is very true, replied Ellen, but if we were to attend every public institution and every evening school which offered itself for our improvement, we might spend every farthing of our earnings and even more. Then if sickness should overtake us, what are the probable consequences? Here we are, far from kindred and home, and if we have an empty purse, we shall be destitute of friends also. I do not think so, Ellen. I believe there is no place where there are so many advantages within the reach of the laboring class of people as exist here, where there is so much equality, so few aristocratic distinctions, and such good fellowship as may be found in this community. A person has only to be honest, industrious, and moral to secure the respect of the virtuous and good, though he may not be worth a dollar, while on the other hand an immoral person, though he should possess wealth, is not respected. As to the morality of the place, returned Ellen, I have no fault to find. I object to the constant hurry of everything. We cannot have time to eat, drink, or sleep. We have only thirty minutes, or at most three-quarters of an hour, allowed to us to go from our work, partake of our food, and return to the noisy chatter of machinery. Up before day, at the clang of the bell, and out of the mill by the clang of the bell, into the mill, and at work, in obedience to that ding-dong of a bell, just as though we were so many living machines. I will give my notice to-morrow. Go, I will. I won't stay here and be a white slave. Ellen, said I, do you remember what it is said of the bee, that it gathers honey even in a poisonous flower? May we not, in like manner, if our hearts are rightly attuned, find many pleasures connected with our employment, 
Why is it, then, that you so obstinately look altogether on the dark side of a factory life? I think you thought differently while you were at home, on a visit, last summer, for you were glad to come back to the mill in less than four weeks. Tell me, now, why were you so glad to return to the ringing of the bell, the clatter of the machinery, the early rising, the half-hour dinner, and so on? I saw that my discontented friend was not in a humor to give me an answer, and I therefore went on with my talk. You are fully aware, Ellen, that a country life does not exclude people from labor, to say nothing of the inferior privileges of attending public worship, that people have often to go a distance to meeting of any kind, that books cannot be so easily obtained as they can here, that you cannot always have just such a society as you wish, that you... She interrupted me by saying, we have no bell with its everlasting ding-dong. What difference does it make, said I, whether you shall be awakened by a bell or the noisy bustle of a farmhouse? For, you know, farmers are generally up as early in the morning as we are obliged to rise. But then, said Ellen, country people have none of the clattering of machinery constantly dinning in their ears. True, I replied, but they have worse, and that is, a dull, lifeless silence all around them. The hens may cackle sometimes, and the geese gabble, and the pigs squeal. Ellen's hearty laugh interrupted my description, and presently we proceeded, very pleasantly, to compare a country life with a factory life in Lowell. Her scowl of discontent had departed, and she was prepared to consider the subject candidly. We agreed that since we must work for a living, the mill, all things considered, is the most pleasant and best calculated to promote our welfare, that we will work diligently during the hours of labor, improve our leisure to the best advantage in cultivation of the mind, hoping thereby not only to increase our own pleasure, but also to add to the happiness of those around us. Almira The Whortleberry Excursion About a dozen of us, lads and lasses, had promised friend H., that on the first lowry day we would meet him and his family on the top of Moose Mountain for the purpose of picking whortleberries and of taking a view of the country around. We had provided the customary complement of baskets, pails, dippers, etc., and one morning, which promised a suitable day for our excursion, we piled ourselves into a couple of wagons and rode to the foot of the mountain and commenced climbing it on foot. A beaten path and spotted trees were our guides. A toilsome way we found it, some places being so steep that we are obliged to hold by the twigs to prevent us from falling. Three-quarters of an hour after we left our horses, we found ourselves on the whortleberry ground, some of us singing, some chatting, and all trying to see who could pick the most berries. Friend H. went from place to place among the young people, and with his social conversation gave new life to the party, while his chubby boys and rosy girls, by their nimbleness, plainly told that they did not intend that any one should beat them in picking berries. Towards noon, friend H. conducted us to a spring, where we made some lemonade, having taken care to bring plenty of lemons and sugar with us, and also bread and cheese for a lunch. Seated beneath a wide-spreading oak, we partook of our homely repast, and never in princely hall were the choicest viands eaten with a keener relish. After resting a while, we recommenced picking berries, and in a brief space our pails and baskets were all full. About this time the clouds cleared away, the sun shone out in all the splendor imaginable, 
and bright and beautiful was the prospect. Far as the eye could reach, in a north and northeasterly direction, were to be seen fields of corn and grain, with new-mown grassland and potato flats, farmhouses, barns, and orchards, together with a suitable proportion of woodland, all beautifully interspersed, and a number of ponds of water, in different places, and of different forms and sizes, some of them containing small islands, which added to the beauty of the scenery. The little village of Wakefield Corner, which was about three miles distant, seemed to be almost under our feet, and with friend H.'s spy-glass we could see the people at work in their gardens, weeding vegetables, picking cherries, gathering flowers, etc. But not one of our number had the faculty that the old lady possessed, who, in the time of the Revolution, in looking through a spy-glass at the French fleet, brought the Frenchmen so near that she could hear them chatter, so we had to be content with ignorance of their conversation. Southwesterly might be seen Cropple Crown Mountain, and beyond it Merry Meeting Pond, where I have been told Elder Randall, the father of the Free Will Baptist denomination, first administered the ordinance of baptism. West might be seen Tumble-Down Dick Mountain, and north Ossipee Mountains, and far north might be seen the White Mountains of New Hampshire, whose snow-crowned summits seemed to reach the very skies. The prospect in the other directions was not so grand, although it was beautiful, so I will leave it and take the shortest route with my companions, with the baskets and pails of berries, to the house of friend H. On our way we stopped to view the lot of rock-maples, which, with some little labor, afforded a sufficient supply of sugar for the family of friend H., and we promised that in the season of sugar-making the next spring we would make it convenient to visit the place and witness the process of making maple sugar. Our descent from the mountain was by a different path, our friends having assured us that although our route was to be farther, we should find it more pleasant, and truly we did, for the pathway was not so rough as the one in which we travelled in the morning. And besides, we had the pleasure of walking over the farm of the good Quaker, and of hearing from his own lips many interesting circumstances of his life. The country, he told us, was quite a wilderness when he first took up his abode on the mountain, and bears, he said, were as plenty as woodchucks, and destroyed much of his corn. He was a bachelor, and lived alone for a number of years after he first engaged in clearing the land. His habitation was between two huge rocks, at about seventy rods from the place where he afterwards built his house. He showed us this ancient abode of his. It was in the midst of an old orchard. It appeared as if the rocks had been originally one, but by some convulsion of nature it had been sundered, midway, from top to bottom. The back part of this dwelling was a rock wall, in which there was a fireplace and an oven. The front was built of logs, with an aperture for a doorway, and the roof was made of saplings and bark. In this rude dwelling, friend H. dressed his food and ate it, and here, on a bed of straw, he slept his lonely nights. A small window in the rock admitted the light by day, and by night his solitary dwelling was illuminated with a pitch-pine torch. On being interrogated respecting the cause of his living alone for so long as he did, he made answer by giving us to understand that if he was called the bear, he was not so much of a brute as to marry until he could give his wife a comfortable maintenance. And moreover, I was resolved, said he, that Hannah should never have the least cause to repent of the ready decision which she made in my favor. Then, said one of our company, 
"'Your wife was not afraid to trust herself with the bear?' "'She did not hesitate in the least,' said friend H., "'for when I popped the question by saying, "'Hannah, will thee have me?' "'She readily answered, "'Yes, to—' "'She would have said, "'Tobias, I will,' "'but the words died on her lips, "'and her face, which blushed like the rose, "'became deadly pale, "'and she would have fallen on the floor "'had I not caught her in my arms. "'After Hannah got over her faintness, "'I told her that we had better not marry "'until I was in a better way of living, "'to which she also agreed, "'and,' said he, "'before I brought home my bird, "'I had built yonder cage,' "'pointing to his house. "'And now, neighbors, let us hasten to it, "'for Hannah will have her tea ready "'by the time we get there. "'When we arrived at the house, "'we found that tea was ready, "'and the amiable Mrs. H., "'the wife of the good Quaker, "'was waiting for us with all imaginable patience.' The room in which we took tea was remarkably neat. The white floor was nicely sanded, and the fireplace filled with pine tops and rose bushes, and vases of roses were standing on the mantelpiece. The table was covered with a cloth of snowy whiteness and loaded with delicacies, and here and there stood a little Chinese vase filled with white and damask roses. So ho, said the saucy Henry L. upon entering the room. I thought that you Quakers were averse to every species of decoration. "'But see, here's a whole flower-garden.' Friend H. smiled and said, "'The rose is a favorite with Hannah, "'and then it is like her, with one exception.' "'And what is that exception?' said Henry. "'Oh,' said our friend, "'Hannah has no thorns to wound.' Mrs. H.'s heightened color and smile plainly told us that praise from her husband was music to her ear. After tea, we had the pleasure of promenading through the house— and Mrs. H. showed us many articles of domestic manufacture, being the work of her own and her daughter's hands. The articles consisted of sheets, pillowcases, bed-quilts, coverlets of various colors, and woven in different patterns, such as chariot-wheels, Rose of Sharon, Ladies' Delight, Federal Constitution, and other patterns, the names of which I have forgotten. The white bedspreads and the table-covers, which were inspected by us, were equal, if not superior, to those of English manufacture. In short, all that we saw proclaimed that order and industry had an abiding place in the house of friend H. Mrs. H. and myself seated ourselves by a window which overlooked a young and thrifty orchard. A flock of sheep were grazing among the trees, and their lambs were gambling from place to place. "'This orchard is more beautiful than your other,' said I but I do not suppose it contains anything so dear to the memory of friend H. as his old habitation. She pointed to a knoll, where was a small enclosure, and which I had not before observed. There, said she, is a spot more dear to Tobias, for there sleep our children. Your cup has then been mingled with sorrow, said I. But, replied she, we do not sorrow without hope, for their departure was calm as the setting of yonder sun, which is just sinking from sight, and we trust that we shall meet them in a fairer world, never to part. A tear trickled down the cheek of Mrs. H., but she instantly wiped it away and changed the conversation. Friend H. came and took a seat beside us, and joined in the conversation, which, with his assistance, became animated and amusing. Here, thought I, dwell a couple, happily united. Friend H., though rough in his exterior, nevertheless possesses a kindly affectionate heart, and he has a wife whose price is above rubies. The saucy Henry soon came to the door and bawled out, The stage is ready. 
we obeyed the summons, and found that Henry and friend H.'s son had been for our vehicles. We were again piled into wagons, pails, baskets, hortleberries, and all, and with many hearty shakes of the hand, and many kind farewells, we bade adieu to the family of friend H., but not without renewing the promise that, in the next sugar-making season, we would revisit Moose Mountain. Jemima THE WESTERN ANTIQUITIES In the valley of the Mississippi, and the more southern parts of North America, are found antique curiosities and works of art, bearing the impress of cultivated intelligence. But of the race, or people, who executed them, time has left no vestige of their existence, save these monuments of their skill and knowledge. Not even a tradition whispers its guesswork who they might be. We only know they were. What proof and evidence do we gather from their remains, which have withstood the test of time, of their origin, and probable era of their existence? That they existed centuries ago is evident from the size which the forest trees have attained, which grew upon the mounds and fortifications discovered. That they were civilized and understood the arts is apparent from the manner of laying out and erecting their fortifications, and from the various utensils of gold, copper, and iron which have occasionally been found in digging below the earth's surface. If I mistake not, I believe even glass has been found, which, if so, shows them acquainted with chemical discoveries which are supposed to have been unknown until a period much later than the probable time of their existence. That they were not the ancestors of the race which inhabited this country at the time of its discovery by Columbus appears conclusive from the total ignorance of the Indian tribes of all knowledge of arts and civilization, and the non-existence of any tradition of their once proud sway. That they were a mighty people is evident from the extent of territory where these antiquities are scattered. The banks of the Ohio and Mississippi tell they once lived, and even to the shore where the vast Pacific heaves its waves there are traces of their existence. Who were they? In what period of time did they exist? In a cave in one of the western states, there is carved upon the walls a group of people, apparently in the act of devotion, and a rising sun is sculptured above them. From this we should infer that they were pagans, worshipping the sun and the fabulous gods. But what most strikingly arrests the antiquarian's observation, and causes him to repeat the inquiry, who were they, is the habiliments of the group. One part of their habits is of the Grecian costume, and the remainder is of the Phoenicians. Were they a colony from Greece? Did they come from that land in the days of its proud glory, bringing with them a knowledge of arts, science, and philosophy? Did they, too, seek a home across the western waters, because they loved liberty in a strange land better than they loved slavery at home? Or what may be as probable, were they the descendants of some band who managed to escape the destruction of ill-fated Troy? the descendants of a people who had called Greece a mother country, but were sacrificed to her vindictive ire, because they were prouder to be Trojans than the descendants of Grecians? Aye, who were they? Might not America have had its Hector, its Paris, and Helen, its maidens who prayed, and its sons who fought? All this might have been, but their historians and their poets alike have perished. They have been, but the history of their existence, their origin, and their destruction, all, all are hidden by the dark chaos of oblivion. Imagination alone, from inanimate landmarks, 
voiceless walls, and soulless bodies, must weave the record which shall tell of their lives, their aims, origin, and final extinction. Recently, report says, in Mexico there have been discovered several mummies, embalmed after the manner of the ancient Egyptians. If true, it carries the origin of this fated people still farther back, and we might claim them to be contemporaries with Moses and Joshua. Still, if I form my conclusions correctly from what descriptions I have perused of these western relics of the past, I should decide that they corresponded better with the ancient Grecians, Phoenicians, or Trojans than with the Egyptians. I repeat, I may be incorrect in my premises and deductions, but as imagination is their historian, it pleases me better to fill a world with heroes and beauties of Homer's delineations than with those of Pharaoh and his host. Lisette End of section 3